Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 211. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. It is two days away from the launch of... Volume 3 of Starships with our stories. Oh, come on, man. It's frantic here. Trust us. It's headless chickens all over the place. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have an interview with Dee Kniff, who has put together the artwork, the layout, everything forced. I've, I've picked the writers, you know what I mean? I've got an interview with Dee, see if we can get him back, you know what I mean? Because the lad's losing his mind here with the amount of work that's gone on. So have a listen to that. We've got looking back at genre history with Amy H. Sturgis. Main fiction is In the Harsh Glow of Its Incandescent Beauty by Mercurio de Riviera. Mercurio is in volume three with that fantastic story. Then we have Hugo Reviews by Andy Thomaswick. He's reviewing The Rainbow's End by Verno Vinci. That is today's show. I hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So we are on the eve of the launch of Starship Sova Stories Volume 3. The funny thing is, you know what I mean? Like Volume 3, it didn't, I swear. It was just five minutes ago. Dee dropped us an email and says, should we do Volume 1? And Volume 1 took two weeks. We got that together in two weeks, Volume 1. Volume 2 was a little bit longer. I think a few months, three months, something like that. Volume 4, sorry, Volume 3 here, it, a year. <laughs> literally a year it's just took an immense lot of work so proud of it yes i would say that it's my baby but honestly trust us it's fantastic i've got an interview with d who has just spent so much time you know he's kind of head of an advertising company he kind of he, he just knows how to kind of hit the sweet spot with doing anything like this and he certainly has so there's one man on the end of this line that has worked so bloody hard on, well, on, God, one, two, and now Starship Sofa's Volume 3. D, are you there, sir? I'm just about here, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> just be, just before we're kind of getting the talk, I've just asked there, D, for a little sound check, and I, and I normally ask anybody, what, what do you have for breakfast? And D says, I don't have breakfast, just painkillers. Now, I don't know if anyone can remember. <laughs> I thought that was a lush answer. Because didn't you fall down the... St- was it... Did you go to a party or, or some... I was. It was an after show for a, a Snow Patrol uh, gig that, that a friend of mine uh, works for Snow Patrol, and I went afterwards on... Uh, I wasn't even drunk, mind you. Just one or two drinks of me, but the stairs were slippy, and I went arse over tit down the stairs, and I shattered my shoulder blade, and 
you know, a year later, I'm still dealing with the with the, <laughs> with the repercussions of a, a one night out. So, <laughs> hey, honestly, well, if I could send over me me Anadin super strength, I would. Sir. <laughs> well, it, it reminds me of when when you had your fall in a couple of years back when you woke oh, up. That's right. And th- that was actually when I first started listening to the show. Really, was when what just after that fall, and how you felt then for the last year or so, or for six months or so, I've felt exactly the pain that you had then that was yeah, I, 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 it, I tell you what was scary with that was was just when you know i fell over there was horrible kind of fractures and things but it was when the doctor said we'll not have to drill i just kind of started to cry you know because i didn't even expect them to have to go in my head and drill kind of pockets you know let gas air bubbles out ox you know what i mean and when he said oh. we'll not have to drill I was like, what? It was a possibility that you might have a drill into my skull. Uh. We might not have to chop your legs off. <laughs> but I've got D on the end, because like, say, D, you have put so much time and effort into this, and just, I'm, I've actually got this kind of first coffee, this coffee, copy here. This is like the kind of, the very first one, we normally kind of pr- get one printed off, even though we know it's got mistakes in it, just so we can see what it looks like. And D, it's stunning. We've got the cover by Skeet. And you were just saying there, it, it is a chunky book, isn't it? Yeah, I'd say it's about uh, twice or three times even uh, the size of Volume 1. And probably Volume 1 and Volume 2 stuck together to the size of, of, of Volume 3. Well, I'll I tell you what you can, you can kind of tell, because you can tell by the Lulu price what we kind of pay for the books, because it goes up every year. Do you know what I Absolutely, mean? yeah. <laughs> And the amount of time that goes into making them goes up every year as well. I think the first one we threw together in two weeks or something. And then volume two took the guts of about seven months to put together. And this one, it's been like a solid year. And I'd say I've been putting in on average two hours a day. And that's not just with, you know, design or, or laying out. That's, you know, contacting people, emailing people, you know, going through... Uh, galleries and, 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 and deviant art pages trying to find illustrators that it suit a story. So it's not just the layout. There's an awful lot of work that goes into to getting the illustrators in. And I think one of the big, big this one was getting the vintage art done as well for, for the ads as opposed to running ads from comic books or, or public domain stuff was actually getting new commissioned uh, ad, retro ads done and getting uh, permission to reprint some ads from uh, uh, some beautiful sites. There was a couple of amazing, uh, uh, there's the guy Stephen Thomas did some beautiful uh, vintage you know, rocket ship tours and, and lunar adventures, really beautiful things. I think that the ads for me are, are one of the standouts in, in, in this volume. Do you know you, you know what I love about it? It's because you you dropped us an email saying, "Oh, Tony, we've got these ads, and them ads are you know because like the the full page kind of ads in this thing. I mean, they're not like adverts. They're just it's just really all what well, it is, isn't it? It's art, but it's just exactly what you know Starship Sofa would like. Do you know what I mean? These adverts are just like cruising by you know wherever planet and the Milky Way. Uh, what's it? Lines. You know, midnight. Midnight Zephyr. Yes. Oh, it's just... They're, they're, they're beautiful. I, they're, we got a, a gorgeous one there from uh, Greg Broadmore, who uh, works in Waiter. He does uh, Dr. Grodbort's rocket uh, recognition chart. He does, he's got an amazing website. He builds all of those fancy ray guns for, for Waiter. Uh, so that, that's beautiful. And, you know, there's 
so many fantastic ads in this. I, we, we've got uh, Stephen Thomas, Mudd, Leno Grady, Danny Boyle, David Boyle, Richard John Yankovic, David Malky, Carly Minardo, Anton Emden, who had been in Volume 1 and Volume 2. I, yes, uh, I asked about that as well, because uh, I noticed um, there was, there's a certain advert I like in there where it's kind of Starships of a Galactic Recruitment Agency or something like that. Absolutely, yeah, and, yeah that, uh, that's Anton Emden, yeah. Tickled my, that tickled my as well, you know, my kind of things. It's just, where you know, these those kind of ads, the, the Milky Way ones, you know, like the, the Venus by Night, and uh, the, yeah. where have they come from? Who who does that one then, these ones? Stephen, Th- Stephen Thomas, he does... Uh... He creates uh, vintage-style, you know, retro ads based on... The, these ones in particular were, were suited Starship Sofa, but he does them based on video games and movies and all sorts of things. So uh, I, I contacted him and I got these ones, which are all, you know, there's one for each planet in the solar system, so they really suited us perfectly. Well, wh- what uh, I'm wondering as well, mind you, because, you know, like this is all kind of put together voluntary, did... Um, and and we, he was quite happy to, to, to let these go in here voluntary? Absolutely, I, you know, it's been great. Again, every, the, the, I don't think anybody said no to me. You know, the people I wanted uh, in ninety nine percent said yes straight away. So we've got some fantastic uh, pictures in that. That they're, but uh, the people are just you know, are incredibly generous, and I think it's you know either they have heard of the show and they want to support the show, or they're just incredibly generous by nature and are quite happy to. To give to give art out to people, you know, and you know, most of, like I'd say ninety five percent of the art was done especially for Starship Sofa uh, Stories Volume Three, so uh, the, the, which is amazing. The amount of you know, the, as much as I complain about the amount of time that I spend working on this, uh, there's you know twenty five thirty artists out there who who have gladly given you know dozens of hours each to create work for for this as well which I I'm you know over the moon about each and every time I get a, a an amazing picture in by email you know what's um nice as well because at the, at the at the end or just before the kind of engine room the extras and we'll we'll talk about that in a second or two there's an afterword by me and like I wrote it when you know when you were kind of just flat out working and you were you told us the kind of the amount of hours and actually what it would cost you because you're kind of you know a boss of a kind of advertising agency what you would actually charge to make this and yes my- <laughs> It was just like silly money in the real world, you know, like what what you would charge like a, say an organisation or a company for something like this. So in my afterword, actually, one of the second paragraph is, "Will there be a volume four? You know what I mean? It's just like you kind of think, God. And I, to be quite honest, though, you know, I was thinking about volume four. I think we need help. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's the you know if you can kind of get like if you if you kind of wanted if you wanted to do volume four, get help. Do you know what I mean? Because there's loads of pe- people out there helping, and I think it would be shame not to. But I listen. You know, it's entirely up to you if we if we go down to, to actually struggle into volume four again, or even change it slightly. Because honestly, when people see this book, they'll see how it works there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No. This this one is is amazing looking and. Uh... I, there will be a volume four. It might might take a little longer. It might not be as amazing looking. But I'm just kind of one of those people who who uh, 
when when I take a job on, I, 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 I'm loath to pass it on to other people or, you know, I, I'm not very good. I'm an awful boss because I... I do you take, do you have to do everything and uh, I do everything myself. It's it's I think it's called uh, lead management. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know we haven't even kind of mentioned the, the the writers in there as well. Absolutely, that there's some amazing stories. Like it, it was a pleasure to put to, to to work with some of these stories. Um, and not only the stories that we got, there's all the the nonfiction as well that we got in, which is which has been great. That's that's, uh, that's for a, this volume um, as well. A, yes, because that was the first as well. We decided to yeah. actually ask our you know fact articles, and I just want to see an apology now to JJ Campanella because Jim says oh he's up for it, and he says just tell us a deadline. So I, I need to know a kind of deadline because he's got schools and everything. You know, he was professor or whatever at some university, and didn't I forget to email him back? So <laughs> I haven't got JJ Campanella's oh. work in there. So Jim. I am sorry for that. <laughs> well, volume four. Well, then there, there's the promise of volume four. Then <laughs> you know what? Because um, well, I'll, I'll name some of the writers. You've got like Tad Williams in there, Joe Haldeman. But you know, just as important for me, mind you, is you know getting someone like Matthew Sanborn Smith in there. Because like Matt's writing. Do you know what I mean? He's putting out some little short stories that I've read. I think we played one on the show. Just excellent. And they get you know give Matt a kind of chance to be. And like, God, it's you know it's only Starship's over. It's not like. You know, a kind of a John Joseph Adams anthology there, where it goes all around the bloody world. But it's just lovely to have you know, like friends in as well. That's what. Well, yeah, kinda... we've got Larry, Larry is in there again. That, that he's been in for all three, <laughs> and we've got Amy Sergis is there, and we have uh, what other friends of the show are in there? Um, Morgan, Morgan, and, yeah, and absolutely. Dennis with his film, his film talk as well. But I tell you, there is some writers who are just kind of Jack McDivitt's in there, Tad Williams, Alan Steele. Um, who else we got? Will McIntosh. That friction story. I'll be honest. Yes. With you, that was that was one of the first stories that uh, uh, I heard um, on Starship Sofa. I, in fact, I don't think I heard it on Starship no, I think Sofa. It was, I think it, was right it was Pseudopod or right. uh, Escape Pod, but it was recorded by Starship Sofa and I think it was it was when you were doing the Hugo Award nominees that was that not um Bridesigle because I think we did Bridesigle and I might have played Friction to be quite I'm not too sure well maybe I either did that, but that was one of the first stories that got me into Starship Sofa as well was it was Friction I absolutely love that love that story and uh, uh dear friend of mine Junie Coponen from uh, uh Denmark I think he is or is he Swedish Finland uh, the beautiful illustration for that as well is exactly what uh, I pictured when I read the story. So he did, he really captured that 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 perfectly for me. Well, I'll tell you, I, we sent we we actually sent the kind of the PDF kind of copies out to the writers just to have a little look and you know kind of save us the kind of proofing because it's some I just can't see spelling mistakes. Well, loving the toffee to be quite honest, and um, it was one of the writers. It was Saladin Ahmed sent just says you know Tony, can I my artwork is fantastic. Can I can I you know can I put it out on my blog? Can I put it on on Twitter and that and straight away? Yeah, it's, you know, it's lovely to do it. Yes, you know by all means do that. So he got his artwork out because like you say the, the the artwork. You know, oh yeah, there was. The one the Sal Saladamas one uh, by Ben Green, absolutely stunning. It's mm-hmm. like a, a a classic 1950s movie poster. It's got you know big head and then little, but like it's like you know Indiana Jones or Casablanca, Casablanca or something. It's absolutely stunning. They're really just the quality of the artwork in this edition is, is absolutely amazing. Do you know and when again, you sorry, I was going to ask you. You know when you get the, the artwork sent over to you, do, does it come because in here it's, it's all black and white? Does it come black and white for you? Or do, 
Well, usually when when I contact out the artists uh, initially, and you know they, they they say what kind of specs it is, and I give them a size, or you know I'd say you know you can have choose any of these sizes, and I'll fit the the, the story around your artwork, um, black and white, just to save you the bother of coloring. But some people, you know, go the extra little little stage and do them in color. So I have one or two bits and pieces in color, and you know it's a shame to have to convert them into into black and white to, to put them into the book. But I do have there's. Uh, Another friend of mine, Len O'Grady, did uh, uh, the ad for Starship Sofa with uh, with apologies to uh, Windsor McKay, who did the Little Nemo stories, which is a you know young lad in his pajamas on the. On that's the sofa, right. Yes, beautiful. That, that, I have that in color. Oh right! Um, oh, that's no, that is a lovely one. That because I love anything that's got. Get, I was going to say I love anything that's got like the Starship Sofa logo. You know, like it's got it's different to how I kind of see Starship Sofa, and that and that was like a nice little kind of exciting find. You know, because you do you, there's just honestly, dude, there's that much in this book. You know, like you find it. There's like ads and different ads. You find things all the time. Absolutely, and it's it it really is. You know, it really is a, 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 a work of love and sweat and tears and pain. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of... I was going to say where it, where it came for me, you know, where the kind of hardship is. It's trying to organise, to get the stuff off the writers. Do you know, because, yes, it's, you know, I, I, we are so grateful because all the writers, you know, it's all kind of voluntary. But it's just like, just, you know, read the email, right? I want that, that, because we've, we've got extras in the book. So obviously I want a photograph, I want a bio, I want a picture of your work desk and something else. And they come in dribs and drabs. So you've got to email them back. So then they'll send a picture of a desk. So then you've got to email them back again. And it's like, it's like, oh man. Do you know what I mean? it, is, it, it, it is quite draining. But, you know, again, these are people who are giving us uh, free content you know, to support the show out of the goodness of their hearts. And I don't think we can expect them to jump to it straight away without the, the, the five or six reminders and the, <laughs> the two or three other reminders and then a, another, oh, my God, we're, we're past deadline reminder. <laughs> yeah, it's, that, it's, that, it's that one that kind of you kind of think, oh, dear me. You know, in the extras, and I don't know if anyone kind of knows about the extras, we did it last time, where we, we do ask writers to give her a little bit extra, just so it goes in a, a different volume. And... <laughs> We can charge a little bit more for it. But it's nice because there's one in there, mind you, which is, I think, my favourite. And it's by, it's Gareth L. Powell's, where he's just, he's a little tot. And he's standing with, you know, you can just see the backs of him and his dad. And he's like, you know, he's probably like two or three year old in a, in a kind of big chunky coat. And his dad's got like this big fisherman's cardigan on and wellies and it, they're at the sea. It's a, it's a beautiful oh. picture, all right. Uh-huh. And it's actually, I think my favourite is... Uh, is uh, the James Morrow extra, which is uh, uh, James Morrow's version of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson uh, as dictator to his mother when he was seven years old. I think it's, it's the fir- the first and last pages of it, and it's fantastic. You know, I think he, he, he loved reading so much that he, when he read it, the books, he, he kind of committed them to memory and then... Di- regurgitated them in his own style so just just seeing those books was beautiful and also there was there's fantastic pages out of whose sketchbook is it now that uh, Joe Haldeman's isn't it is that the one is where it, is it Joe Haldeman's the, the, the watercolours of um, cause I've got it Joe here. Haldeman's oh absolutely stunning yeah he said he's got because he's got like a, an everything book where he just he just puts all his thoughts and is it yeah, and I, I, I it was one of those things that in college when I was in art college that I, I was 
told that I had to to keep was 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 kind of a you know a book of of memories and ideas and you know I I know people who have you know twenty volumes of these books that they've been keeping every year and I'd start them and I'd forget about them. It's like a diary. You just you know you start it with all the best of uh, intentions and completely forget about it. Yeah, yeah after that, a while. Yes, but that. Um... Because you know you you kind of know Joe Holden like I say, and it it's been an honour to get him in this book. You know, he's he's kind of one of my top writers there. You know, him and the the, the Daniel Key story are probably my favourite science fiction books. So to get him in and then to discover, do you know what I mean? That and he's he's obviously a good painter as well because it's in the style of you know the 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 guy that who was it like? It's like a little bit like you know the Roald Dahl, the artist for Roald Dahl. Oh. Just, uh... just, something Blake or something like that Quentin Blake Quentin Blake it's a, it's a bit like you know it's that kind of watercolour feel to it you know this kind yeah, of wishy-washy colour yeah beautiful ink drawings are fantastic but it's yes and let's just exactly how many pages we've got there 367 so it's a, it's a hefty it's a hefty volume I'd say there's some weight on it in there well and you know, and we've decided it's going to be the same price as last year all the kind of same volumes because we're going to we've started up there and as we're recording this now it is tuesday this show goes out tomorrow on wednesday and then it's what it's the eighth today the book comes out on the 11th that's your launch date for 11th so we've got now help us out here because we've got a, an ebook edition yeah, that's right. We've got. Is it now? Is there well, a few the, the, ebook editions? Well, there is. There, there's there's uh, about ten versions of it. So that you know, it, it goes for for dot moby dot epub uh, for the Kindle for the iPad for you know. There, there's all the different versions, the different e versions of it, uh, and then there is paperback, paperback with bonus, uh, hardback hardback with bonus and then our special edition signed hardback with bonus uh and then also the 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 pdf version ebook for uh which for ipads which i'm sure looks amazing I would I would like to have a look at that. You know, I've got an iPhone, but you know, which will it shows as best as I, I guess it can. But I bet it looks stunning on an iPad. You know, once you can oh, look. it does. It looks fantastic. We're flicking through the pages on iPad. I think it, it oh, really. Right, so you, oh, is that? Oh, you've t- yes, you emailed us today saying that. So that was ah, love that. We kind of have a look at it in digital. It's fantastic. Looks great. Well, I was I was going to say something else about it as well. Oh, that's what you know. Not only have you got you know to kind of lay it out and do it all, then you've got the kind of lumbersome task of kind of just different versions, different versions, <laughs> yeah. So upload then, as well, because you're saying it takes a while just to even do one upload to, to Lulu. You were telling us that before. Yeah, do it. Like you know, once you've created your PDFs, then you have to upload them. You know, put the book together. You know, say how many, how many pages, hardback soft back, you know, all the, fill in all the details. And then once you've done that, you have to go back and do it again for the next version. It's not a case of, well, I've done that book, turn it into hardback. You pretty much have to start the book from scratch uh, each time. <laughs> That's just, honestly, if anybody wants to kind of do one of these, do you know what I mean? G- give them some wise words, Dee, because I don't think you should recommend it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's It's not bad. <laughs> You know, it really is a labour of love. If, if if I was getting paid to do it, I wouldn't do it because uh, you know that th- th- I wouldn't be getting paid enough for it. But because I'm doing it for the show and and, and uh, uh, for 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 myself as well as 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 for you, uh, I'm, I'm quite happy to do it. I tell you what, well, thank you so much. You know what I mean. Obviously, 
you kind of, I kind of get over you. Know, like I say, I've got the book here there now. I tell you what touched me as well. Do you know what I mean? We, I went to John Joseph Adams for the introduction. You know, because I, I, I didn't want to kind of write an introduction again. I was, I thought, oh, I'll get John, and he just wrote, you know, the most amazing praising thing about Starship Sofa. So then, absolutely, it wasn't he? Oh, it was just amazing. Yeah, I think that there was a uh, such a. Well, there was something there that, uh, where was it, that really, uh, uh, well, I think it's about you, you know, it's the good Captain Tony C. Smith, his enthusiasm for science fiction and fantasy, his tireless efforts to promote short fiction and his ability to engage with the listeners. These are the real reasons that people tune in to Starship Sofa and what's made Starship Sofa the flagship of science fiction podcasts, which, you know, is true. And I, I think uh, as great as the content of, of the, the, the show is, uh, you know, 90% of it is your enthusiasm for, now, for, you make, for science you're fiction. You're making it blush, so be ah, go on. <laughs> ah, go on. And we've also, did, you, did we get, or did you get the quote I sent you off Peter F. Hamilton? Cause we got I did, it. for the cover, yes. that's on the back cover, yeah. yes. Yes, I'm chuffed to bits with that as well, because um, to get someone, you know, of his kind of stature to comment on the book as well, so... So that is it. It is, like you say, it's tomorrow's the, the 9th of the 11th. The book comes out two days later. So copies will be on sale. You'll be able to just go to the front of the website and you'll, you'll see the biggest probably ad on the site there for volume <laughs> three. And you can, that's the beauty mind you do. What I love about it, it is the different versions. Cause you sometimes think, oh, no one will want the kind of a 299 plain text version. But you're surprised how many people do just want, you know, I just want to have the stories. That's that's all uh, I want. Absolutely. You know, like plain text on your iPhone or your Kindle is, is fine. But uh, the, the 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 actual physical edition is is for uh, is for, for the fans. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what, it's because it's quite, it does, um, you know, grab you by the Charlie Hollicks, you know, when you kind of, when we did it the, yet last year for the, you know, the hardback with the signed signatures. Because basically, I've got to buy in, say, 25 copies and, you know, get them kind of, say, posted over to D. Well, the postage to, to D is just, it makes you wince, you know. And plus, it, it goes by, by donkey, so it takes months <laughs> to get here. But and you think will somebody buy this? Do you know what I mean? You know, because like you say, don't get us wrong. It's, it's eighty nine. I think it's eighty nine pound. It's going to be, or it was last year. But they sold. Do you know what I mean? And they sold. They sold probably as, as quick as anything. You know, I, what they, a relief they, that was. They sold out within two or three days. I, I think so. That that was that was a relief. And again, this I think we might be short one or two signatures on this one due to unforeseen circumstances. I lost post. Oh, it's, so and, and you living in the back of beyond. <laughs> and me living in the back of beyond, uh, like where well, you got your, you ordered the book what two weeks ago and got out within two days. Yes, uh, it's probably not going to arrive to me for two for another two weeks. So, uh, and I was just mentioning the D because I've just ordered it now the kind of the final copy, and I I trapped myself again because I haven't even got volume one or two. I keep giving them away, and <laughs> it was on D's address because I kind of I would post out a D like a, a proof copy. They can't even guarantee to get it before Christmas to yourself. I don't know where the hell you have you got. Is it you know what? I, I, I still kind of picture where you lived. Are you right in the countryside in like the deepest, darkest I, part of Ireland? Honestly, I'm not. I, I'm like, like, like a, an hour's drive from the center of Dublin. So, you know, I go, I, I, I commute to Dublin every morning for work. So, I like, you know, it, it takes me an hour and a half. 
to get to work in the bus in the morning. It can't take the postman that long to get a, a truckload of letters out to half boys. So it's not that far outside town. It is a, it is a, it is a bit uh, 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 Father Ted, but uh, we're not out on Craggy Island or anything like that. <laughs> nearly, nearly. Well, D, you know what I mean? I could honestly chat away all bloody day, but we've got, it's funny because we've got that shorter window as well to kind of get this little recording in and then you've got to do something and I've got to do bloody... Tidying up after, yes, Christmas decorations are up already in our house. <laughs> oh, Tony. <laughs> I've got, it's funny because last year I kind of fought it all away. I don't want them up so early, but as soon as I get Guy Fawkes is finished, it's like rampant here. And then I thought this year I'm just going to enjoy it and not even argue with them. Because normally oh, I end up it, just being grumpy. It's not, it's not special then. If, if it, it just becomes furniture when you've got it up for six weeks. Because it takes that long. It takes that long to put it up. She, actually, my wife had a good argument. It takes that long to put it up because we just love Christmas. Do you know? And it's just, if you had to get it up, because you say you, you kind of put yours up on a certain Sunday, and that actually could be Christmas Eve. The way yeah, we, <laughs> the Sunday before Christmas is when we put up our decorations. And if... Christmas is on a uh, plus I'm a, I'm a grump so <laughs> <laughs> well D it's been lovely again lovely talking to you thank you so much and what can I say do you know what I mean I can't even thank you enough for for doing this you know volume no three problem. Is stunning. <laughs> and you know what it is and, as well it's all these other little things I kind of throw at you as well so there's a thank you as well any, for them uh, can you just do us a logo and uh, maybe an ad and uh, what do you think of this idea and you know I've got a thousand other ideas for you <laughs> I need someone like you to kind of bounce ideas off, you know what I mean? I've got to have someone. Like I usually just say no, though, Tony. God, well, it, it, it doesn't, doesn't wash with us. I just keep on sending ideas. Have you not noticed that, T? I just... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, give, give me a couple of weeks to sort myself out after Volume 3, and then... Uh, oh, we'll, we, we, well, yeah, you know what you've got lined up, anyways. I don't want to talk about that just yet, but you've, yeah. there's, things, there's things lined up there. <laughs> keep you going. But you're a long time into the future. Brilliant. <laughs> Listen, you take care. No problem, Tony. I'll see you again. So, like we were saying there, it comes out on the 11th of the 11th of the 11th. Josh has been, again, frantic, running around, getting the kind of website put together there. Go to the front of the website, you will see the links there, and there will be the different variations of what we said, you know, right from the, the e-book, the plain e-book, right up to that, you know, signed limited edition, £89 hardback edition one. So they're all there. We've only got 25 of those hardback ones, like they were saying in the interview. They do go. Do you know what I mean? It's going to take a little while, what we are explaining there, to kind of get it sorted out and get it done, because... I don't see D lives in the back and beyond there, but it's just, it does for some reason take a long time to, to get them over to D, and we're, we're going to see if we can manage it, but you know, it might take a few weeks, but you've got to book your spot for that one. You know, if you are thinking about, you know, the one way to kind of support us over, this is the kind of the, the fundamental way. It certainly does help, you know what I mean? Please, you know, consider helping Starship over. A fantastic present for anyone. Christmas time. <laughs> So, we're going to dive in with Amy H. Sturgis and looking back at a genre history, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. 
Although this week I'd like to do something a little different. Rather than look at a specific work or a specific author, I'd like to do a bit of an intellectual history on an idea, and that idea seems to be particularly relevant right now as our year draws to a close. I'd like to talk about the origins of and different dimensions of the idea of 2012 as an apocalyptic time. In many venues, 2012 has been synonymous with doomsday. Why is that the case? So, for this segment and the following segment, I'd like to look at 2012 in detail. And first, a quick shout out. This is based on an article which I wrote and published. In Apex Magazine, a publication of science fiction and horror. So, thanks to the folks at Apex, and here we go as we look at the year 2012. Few, if any, end of the world scenarios can claim a longer history than the idea of 2012 as Doomsday, and certainly none has more diverse roots. Depending on where you look, you may find prophecies about 2012 linked to everyone from the ancient Maya. Egyptians and Hopi, to the mysterious prognosticators Nostradamus and Edward Casey, with helpings from the I Ching, reports from cutting-edge geophysicists and geologists, and various New Age self-realization texts thrown in for good measure. Self-styled 2012 experts have emerged from fields as varied as art, theology, psychology, archaeology, astronomy, and ethnobotany. Some claim that life as we know it will end in December 2012, while others believe the year will be one of tremendous opportunity for humanity. In the meantime, Hollywood promises to fuel the public's fascination with 2012, producing orgies of CGI explosions and implosions in its name. Before you and I decide whether to embrace the future with open arms or run away from it, screaming ourselves hoarse, we should sift through and consider the different ingredients. That combined to create the popular culture phenomenon surrounding 2012. First, I'd like to talk about the Maya. At the heart of 2012 predictions lies the long count calendar of the Maya of pre-Columbian Mesoamerica, and that calendar was in turn based on the astronomical insights of the earlier Olmec system. This calendar measures cycles or ages. Each of which lasts approximately 5,126 years. Today, we are living in the final days of the Fourth Age, which began on August 11th, or by some reckonings, 13th, 3114 BCE. Just to put this in historical context, because hey, I'm a historian. That's what I do. This is roughly the time of the rise of early dynastic Egypt and the first construction at Stonehenge. Okay, got that? The fourth age will end on, depending on how you reckon it, December twenty-first or twenty-third, twenty-twelve. But what does that mean exactly? I'm currently staring down my own birthday that will mean the end of my thirties, and I'm trying to figure out the same thing. Is this something I should be scared of? Does this mean doomsday, or is this something I should embrace with open arms? In terms of Maya thoughts on 2012, even expert Mayanists disagree. In his landmark study, The Maya, scholar Michael D. Coe suggests that the Maya might have expected the end of the Fourth Age to be deadly. And here I'm going to quote from Coe's work. 
Armageddon would overtake the degenerate peoples of the world and all creation. That doesn't sound good. This fits with the idea that quote cyclical creations and destructions are apparent in Maya legend. For example, according to Maya mythology, we represent the gods' third attempt at creating humanity. The gods made people first from mud, and those creatures just disintegrated. The gods then made people from wood, but they were displeased with them and destroyed them. The fate of today's humans, you and I, a people made of corn, remains to be seen. But other scholars emphasize that the fourth age, and not the calendar itself, ends in 2012. Sandra Noble, the executive director of the Foundation for the Advancement of Mesoamerican Studies, told USA Today that for the ancient Maya, quote, it was a huge celebration to make it to the end of a whole cycle. Okay, perhaps the ancient Maya would have used this moment of transition from one age to the next to. Party, as it were, like it was 1999. Part of the confusion comes from the fact that historical Maya sources beyond the calendar itself are scarce. The only Maya text that clearly refers to 2012 is a seventh-century inscription in Tabasco, Mexico, known as the Tortuguero Monument VI. Unfortunately, it is now defaced and incomplete. So no thorough, definitive analysis will ever be possible. What remains of the text seems to describe the descent of a war god,、um, a god who was associated with strife and the underworld, which you know doesn't seem to be the most promising of signs. But scholars such as Marcus Eberl and Christian Prager. Focus on the positive connotations of the verb used to describe this descent, claiming that it means that the Maya viewed the event as a positive one rather than a negative one, even if that particular god doesn't seem to be the god of you know happiness, joy, and rainbows. Well, this all begs the question of what do the Maya today think of 2012? Some leaders today claim that apocalyptic thinking is much more of an Anglo trait than a Maya one, and that the panic about 2012 tells us much more about Western fears and, quite possibly, spiritual bankruptcy than Amerindian cosmology. When asked by the Associated Press what he thought about the 2012 phenomenon, Guatemalan elder Apolinario Chile Pixton admitted in disgust that he was quote fed up with this stuff. Ceremonial priest and spiritual guide of the Eagle Clan Don Alejandro also dismisses doomsday predictions, saying quote they say the world will end in 2012. The Mayan elders are angry with this. The world will not end; it will be transformed. This transformation, Alejandro explains, will be anything but terrible. And again, I quote: "We are at the cusp of the era when peace begins, and people live in harmony with Mother Earth." Now let me switch gears a bit and talk about the idea of galactic alignment. The Maya long count calendar continues to capture the popular imagination, not only for its mythological significance, but also. For its potential scientific value, 
the ancient Maya possessed a sophisticated understanding of astronomy, and it informed many aspects of their lives, from their religion and architecture to their calendric system. Knowing this, some 2012 enthusiasts look for connections between the long count calendar's end date for the Fourth Age and significant astronomical events. Independent researcher John Major Jenkins has made a career out of this pursuit, authoring books such as Maya Cosmogenesis 2012. He also coined a term to describe what he views as the astronomical inspiration behind the Maya calendar: galactic alignment. Jenkins and his supporters claim that the end of the Fourth Age, as marked by the Maya, will correspond with some rather remarkable developments in the heavens. For example, December twenty-first, twenty twelve, coincides with the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere, and not just any winter solstice. Approximately every two thousand one hundred and sixty years, the constellation that is visible in the early morning of the spring equinox changes. This signals the end of one astrological age and the beginning of another, a phenomenon also known as the precession of the ages of the zodiac. On December twenty-first, twenty twelve, the age of Pisces will end. The Earth will move into, yes, you guessed it, the age of Aquarius. Pull out your old albums by the fifth dimension. But wait, there's more. During the winter solstice, Earth comes into alignment with the Sun and the galactic equator. In other words, the Sun sits directly between the Earth and the very center of the galaxy. If cosmic energy flows from the galaxy's center, as some claim, the Earth will be blocked off from it. Furthermore, for a 36-year period already underway, a period that includes 2012, the sun at this time appears to fall within the Great Rift, the dark band of dust clouds in the Milky Way, or what the ancient Maya called the Dark Road. Now, the most precise alignment occurred in 1998, but this does not dissuade believers from making the 2012 connection anyway. In a leap from strict science and Let's be honest. Proof of any kind. Jenkins speculates that this positioning of the sun in the Great Rift held great significance for the ancient Maya, who interpreted it as a sign that humanity would experience a profound and fundamental transformation. The galactic alignment theory has found advocates beyond the Maya calendar camp as well. For instance, some researchers, including Audrey Fletcher, author of. Ancient Egyptians and the constellations claim that the most precise view of the winter solstice convergence will be at latitude thirty degrees north, which just so happens to be the location of the Great Pyramid of Giza. You were waiting for the Great Pyramid connection, weren't you? The ancient Egyptians, they assert, built the pyramid as an observation deck from which to witness the galactic alignment. To such authors and their advocates, this implies that the Egyptians believed December twenty-first, twenty twelve, will bring more than simply a novel and fascinating view of the cosmos. Somehow, it will have a lasting impact on humanity. Like Jenkins, many of those who claim an Egyptian connection for galactic alignment adopt an unabashedly mystical and hopeful tone when discussing twenty twelve, imagining that it may represent a new age of enlightenment for the planet. Now let's switch gears again and look at yet another way of thinking about 2012. Another thread in the 2012 tapestry relates to the ancient Chinese text known as the I Ching, or Book of Changes. 
The exact age of the text is uncertain.、Uh, the earliest surviving copy dates back approximately to the mid fourth to early third century BCE. The I Ching teaches about the inevitability and acceptance of change, and the achievement of dynamic balance through opposites. The text includes a series of hexagrams. From one perspective, these are shortcut understandings of larger philosophical principles. From another, they are the foundation for a system of divination. Ethnobotanist, metaphysician, and icon of the '60s counterculture, Terence Kemp McKenna. This is the guy who was once described by Timothy Leary as one of the five or six most important people on the planet. Made the connection between the hexagrams in the I Ching, known as the King Wen sequence, and the year 2012, with the assistance of psychedelic drugs and mushrooms, McKenna devised what he termed novelty theory: the idea that novelty, or the interconnectedness of the universe, ebbs and flows over time. Peak moments signal an evolutionary leap forward for humanity. In the effort to predict these moments of novelty, McKenna devised a computer program based on his interpretation of the I Ching hexagrams. He claimed the program produced a time wave, which he termed Time Wave Zero. McKenna's program highlighted November 2012 as a potential turning point for humanity, during which an instant of infinite complexity would occur, and all things imaginable would take place at the same time. Which sounds to me like the improbability drive described by Douglas Adams, but I digress. Scientists and science fiction authors might term this also as a singularity. According to McKenna, this is an endpoint of sorts because after this date, entropy would no longer exist. Yeah, I said entropy would no longer exist. Now, what would that mean for humans, for the Earth? It's impossible to imagine. McKenna published his findings in his book *The Invisible Landscape*. Later, he became convinced that his work supported the predictions of others who focused on 2012. And in revised editions of the book, he adjusted his findings to echo the popular December 21, 2012 date, as opposed to the November 2012 date. As McKenna's work crosses the line between science and pseudoscience and fringe science and Statistics and numerology. His conclusions remain somewhat controversial. Okay, really controversial. Ironically, his ideas in this case are embraced by many in the New Age movement, even though McKenna himself had little patience with that group. I should point out that McKenna was immortalized in the Twin Peaks series by the psychiatrist character. Um, played by Russ Tamblin, who was modeled on him. Unfortunately, McKenna died in the year 2000, a dozen years short of testing the accuracy of his prediction. This ends the first half of my two-part look at the 2012 phenomenon. Next time, I will talk about other voices from history, the scientific and not so scientific perspectives on 2012. As well as the popular culture and fictional considerations of the year, I hope you've enjoyed this mini intellectual history of the 2012 concept, and I look forward to visiting with you again very soon with another look back into genre history.
you go. The next one will follow next month as well with Amy. It's nice to Amy. It's lovely to have you back. Put a link on the Amy site. Do pop over there and say hello. So the main fiction is In the Harsh Glow of Its Incandescent Beauty by Mercurio de Rivera. And like I say, that story is one of the little treat for you. That story is in the book. Do you know, we've got uh, umpteen kind of, well, there's, there's, there's loads of stories in the book there. Catherine M. Volante, Paul Cornell, James Morrow, Kevin J. Anderson, Michael Swanick. Like I say, we're talking about Larry as well. Got, I forgot to mention Fred. Fred's in there with his little fact article. Aliette de Bordeaux. Alan, St- Alan Steele, do you know what I mean? Fantastic. Anyway, this story is just, you know, Mercury is one of them writers for me. There's like this little group of writers that I kind of just hit every button for me. Mercury is right in there. He's part of that also as well. That, all that fluid writers workshop there in America. He was winner of the 2006 Interzone Readers Poll. He's got a new story in Interzone's Black Static, the horror side of Interzone. And I'm, I'll fluff this, to be quite honest, but... Two Safiro shall protect us. <laughs> Dear, I butchered that. I know I have. But anyways, it's in it's in Black Static 18. That actual story has been nominated for, or was nominated for, the 2011 World Fantasy Award as well. The story about it here came out in Interzone 226, January, February 2010. There's a link on to Mercurio's site. It is read by the, the one and only JJ Campanella. Jim, this is just... Great reading, thank you so much. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present In the Harsh Glow of Its Incandescent Beauty by Mercurio de Rivera. I sprinted through a narrow opening in the cracked pine green glacier through zigzagging pathways. I could make out Rossi's black bomber jacket far behind me appearing and disappearing with each bend. The air pulses struck the sides of the walls, sending chunks of ice flying. I dropped, hugged the frozen ground, and waited. We landed at Lassell Airstrip near Axelis Colony, where I was sure my wife Miranda had arrived a month ago with Rossi. Joriander and Hexa hauled my bags down our seed ship's ramp while I hugged my hooded fur coat tight. Neptune hovered high in the pale viridian sky, even with the Virgin force field doming this airstrip. Triton's tenuous atmosphere still mustered a bitter breeze that stung my face like razors. The three of us trudged across the empty tarmac toward the terminal entranceway, To our left, the towering cathedral-like glaciers of Triton's North Pole glittered blue-green, capturing Neptune's luminescence. Here, Maxwell, Hexa said, removing a leathery scarf and exposing her white-scaled face to the elements. She threw it around my shoulders and pressed close to me. Too close, I thought, for a few seconds longer than necessary. Joriander followed suit, removing his temp mitts and offering them to me. I resisted the urge to slap the gloves to the ground. Knock it off, I'm fine. The worgens hunched their shoulders at my curtness, and I felt a pang of guilt. They continued their steady gait at my side. The ground rumbled and a geyser exploded on the horizon, 
spewing ice lava miles into the sky. Oh, the distances you've traveled, Miranda. He's taken you so far from home. But don't worry, my love. I'm here now. After a few paces, Hexa placed her four-fingered hand on my shoulder, letting it linger there. I wish my people could have produced a more effective field over this area, one that could generate more comfortable temperatures for humans. I apologize. No need, I said, shrugging off her hand. After all, where would we be without you? Probably relegated to digging caves on equatorial Mars, I thought. Morgan Field Tech had opened up every planetesimal in the solar system to human colonization. The limitations of temperature, radiation, gravity, and atmosphere all conquered in one fell swoop. Without their help, I would have never obtained transport from Earth to Triton to track down Miranda and bring her home. Joriander removed a jewel-encrusted sphere from his inside robe pocket and tapped several of the gemstones. In response, the terminal circular doorway irised open and we entered a cavernous holding area. As soon as the door rumbled shut, a dozen bots, mantis-like devices the size of terriers, skittered toward us. They herded us into an enormous decontamination pen where they scanned our retinas, removed and sterilized our clothes, and ran us through a battery of tests to screen for contagious diseases. I caught the worgans staring at me with rapt attention, their large, mooning eyes probing my body. I cupped my hands over my crotch. Despite the worgans' notorious reticence to discuss their sexual practices, they showed no bashfulness at their own nakedness. They were squat, husky, with reptilian scales speckling their bleached white skin and no visible genitalia. Hexa, the female, matched my height, while Joriander, the male, stood a foot shorter. Rumor had it that their sexual organs lay hidden in their flat-topped craniums, which they kept covered at all times, even now with a leafy headdress. I shuddered. For all the worgen's courtesies, I still felt an instinctive aversion toward them. But they offered us so much, and I had to do whatever necessary to save Miranda. One of the bots injected a tracker into my earlobe. Local officials carefully monitored all new arrivals, a practice I was counting on to find Miranda among the hundreds of thousands of Excellus's inhabitants. The bots then sprayed our naked bodies with a microfilament that produced an electrical field evident only by the faintest of blue tinges. This will maintain your body temperature at a more comfortable level. Joriander said. We won't need the heavier protective clothing anymore. I turned away and donned the standard two-piece blue uniform provided to us, feeling the worgen's eyes on my back. The bots then guided us to a raised monorail where the three of us boarded a private rail car headed to Excellus. We sped above smooth, dark green ice plains formed over millions of years by a slurry of water and ammonia. As the minutes turned to hours, the topography below us shifted to a landscape of what I'd heard described as cantaloupe skin, 
an endless expanse of circular depressions separated by deep, rounded ridges. Ahead of us, Neptune crawled across the skyline, growing smaller as it moved to the west, but still filling a quarter of the sky. The great dark spot, a massive storm system, stained its southern hemisphere behind half-formed rings. A spectacular sight, isn't it? Hexa said, leaning toward me. What did you think, Miranda, when you saw these alien vistas? Did you snuggle into Rossi's arms? To what extent had the neuromone warped your thinking? The rail car wound around a bend between two icy mountain peaks, and all at once, Excellus came into view. The settlement sat in the thousand-mile Great Gulch, a valley of endless rows of low, neon-lit hills beneath a silver web of monorail tracks. The wisp of blue from the Worgen force field stretched from one peak to another. Below us, more than 500,000 colonists from Earth, Mars, and Worg populated Excellus. Joriander locked eyes with me in an intense manner that made me uncomfortable. Did you leave it on the ship? he asked. I reached down and unzipped the side pocket of my bag, revealing the air pulser. No, I'll be needing this. Joriander averted his eyes. An air pulse whooshed past me and the ground to my left exploded. Another shot rang out, and I darted into a crevice in the green ice wall. My teeth chattered. I was heading in a dangerous direction, away from Lassell, where the Worgen force field would become more and more tenuous. After a few seconds, I stopped running. Evidently, nothing would protect me from the moon's deadly natural environment. There was no trace of Rossi. No, the sensible thing for him to do would have been to forget about me. But he was no more sensible than I was when it came to Miranda, I supposed. At that moment, Rossi came around a bend, firing. The slim, seven-foot administrator sported a platinum-blonde crew cut and hunched over a comm terminal. Her height pegged her as Marsborn. Yes, they do reside in Excellus. Do you have an address, I asked. It turned out that Miranda and Rossi had temporarily settled in the Pretori district in southern Excellus. They were on the long waiting list for the human worgen expedition to Langalana, an unexplored but potentially habitable planet hundreds of light-years away. Thank you for the help, I said. My pleasure to serve, sir, she bowed dramatically. Welcome to Triton. Joriander, Hexa, and I retreated to the rotunda of the visitor center. From within this hollowed-out hill, it resembled the lobby of any office building on Earth or Mars, except that every human that bustled past us was accompanied by one or two worgens. We boarded the jam-packed public monorail to Pretori. A smaller contingent of worgens wedged in among the Earthers and Martians. 
their bleached white faces frozen in ecstasy. Joriander and Hexa also seemed dazed into paralysis by the human crowd, while I felt relieved by the brief respite from their constant attentions. The complex where Miranda and Rossi resided, like all the habitations in Excellus, consisted of a green, rocky knoll drilled with scores of catacombs and caverns. I disembarked from the tram and walked a paved path that snaked up the rocky terrain. Hexa and Joriander, eager to please, as always, lugged my two bags up the side of the hill. Row upon row of windows pocked the entire hillside, standing out like grids on an emerald anthill. Faces stared from behind them, surveying our arrival. I searched for Miranda's visage among them, to no avail. Making our way through crisscrossing catacombs, I asked for directions from passers-by until I reached the cavern where Miranda lived. I pounded on the door. When no one answered, I lowered my shoulder into it, but the door held firm. Can I help you, sir? A Martian neighbor poked his long neck out of the corridor at the sound of the commotion. I'm looking for the man and woman who live here. Who are you? I'm Miranda's husband. Her husband? Uh, oh, I, I see. The man tilted his head and scrunched his nose in an expression I couldn't quite read. Do you know where they are? I asked. They left last week to attend basic training for the Langalanian expedition. They're due back any day. On my adrenaline high, I had to resist the urge to break down the door anyway. Joriander thanked him for the information and gently pressed his hand against the middle of my back, moving me away. Hexa mentioned that the ships to Langalana departed from the Sapango Planum Plateau in the western hemisphere of Triton which is where training would take place. Our joint venture agreement with the Worgans required humans to work side-by-side side with them on Triton or Europa or at one of the other spaceports for at least six months to qualify for these colonization missions. The Worgans provided their tech to humanity, wormhole-generating seed ships for intergalactic travel, force field devices, low-level AI bots that perform the physical labor, in return, we gave them our art, our ingenuity, and what they desired most of all, our companionship. A trip to distant Sapango Planum risked delaying my reunion with Miranda for weeks if she were already on her way back, and I missed her. So despite my frustration, we were left no alternative but to settle into the closest available cavern to wait. The Worgen shared the single sleeping room while I camped out on the stone green bench in the living area, staring out a window overlooking the pathway approaching the complex. The cavern smelled musky with a trace of burnt rubber, a sure sign of recently lasered rock. Stoked on stims, which I sniffed at a steady pace, I spent two days observing every approaching individual, hoping to see Miranda's sweet face a familiar streak of red hair, her pale, soft skin. Water geysers exploded sporadically on the horizon. The Worgans prepared meals for me and supplied the stems. When they weren't engaging me in annoying small talk, they would sit in two chairs and study me silently. 
a half-smile on their flat faces. "'You are very diligent,' Hexa said. "'Very devoted to your mission. "'That's an admirable trait, Maxwell.' "'I twitched from the stems. "'Why did Miranda leave you?' Joriander asked. "'I had already explained this to them back on Earth "'when I negotiated their price for using the seed ship, eight months of my companionship. "'But they couldn't grasp the situation. "'I had left out many details, of course,' I told them nothing about how Rossi and I had served on the Worgen study group or the love panel as it came to be known in the academic circles we traveled. We were selected to work with a committee of fellow scientists to delve into the nature of the Worgen's obsessive infatuation with humanity. Rossi and I were specifically tasked with examining the alien's brain chemistry, a near-impossible assignment given the aliens' taboo against revealing anything to us about their physiology. But military operatives had surreptitiously obtained organ skin cells and body scans, which proved invaluable to our research. We discovered that the introduction of a strand of the alien's single helix DNA into the cells of the medial temporal lobe of a human test clone caused a new neurotransmitter to be generated in the amygdala, one that stimulated the firing of very specific postsynaptic neurons, the ones responsible for feelings of love. After synthesizing the neuromone, we were in the process of presenting our findings. That's when Rossi disappeared with the sample, and with Miranda. It never crossed my mind that he would think to use the neuromone, and on my wife no less. When I thought of the three years I'd worked side by side with him, the weekend swivel ball games, the times I'd tried to cheer him up over watered-down beers at Helen's pub during his rancorous divorce, how many times had Miranda and I had him over for dinner? She's been drugged, brainwashed, I said to them, fingering the air pulser I now carried in the inside pocket of my jacket. Joriander and Hexa seemed perplexed. She doesn't understand what she's doing? Hexa asked. Her feelings have been warped. When they remained bewildered, I added, I miss her. I miss her smile in the morning, the warmth of her body in our bed. I need to be with her. This they understood. They bobbed their heads in empathy. She's my wife. Joriander and Hexa looked confused again. During our uncomfortable trek from Earth, I had tried my best to explain the concept of marriage to them, with no success. The Worgans had trouble understanding how mere vows could connect two people. I had finally thrown my hands up and escaped to the REM pod where I hibernated for several months, only to awaken to the sight of their flat, smiling faces. How long had they stood there, casting their adoring eyes in my direction over those long months? My skin crawled. It's difficult for us to understand leaving after you've been joined together in what you term marriage, Hexa said. It's complicated, I said. When I stopped talking, Hexa changed subjects and asked, What are these black fibers sprouting on your face? 
She reached out to touch my cheek. I flinched. I haven't had a chance to shave. They continued to gawk at me. Do you have to stare all the time? I asked. You're just so... Joriander struggled for the words. Luminous, incandescent. It's difficult not to admire your beauty. Joriander's response didn't make me any more comfortable. The worgen's unconditional love for us transcended gender or species. As always, I did my best to ignore them and focused my attention on Triton's horizon. My chest ached as I sucked air. After several hundred meters, the trail before me opened into a wide, bowl-shaped arroyo. The peaks of the glacier circled high above. Ahead, the ground broke into layered ridges that sloped downwards. I twirled around, looking in all directions for any sign of Rossi. Then I glimpsed movement. Like a charmed snake, an arm rose from below an ice step, and Rossi fired the air pulser. It struck a glacier wall, scattering icy splinters that rained down on me. On the third night I spotted her. She walked hand in hand with Rossi before he stopped to kiss her. A worgen followed close behind them. Miranda waved goodbye to Rossi, and he proceeded onward past the gates with the worgen while she entered the residential catacombs alone. "'You're looking stressed, Maxwell,' Hexa said. "'Are you well?' Joriander asked. I shoved past the worgens and bolted out the front door, down the curving corridor. When I arrived at the entranceway, I found her by the elevators.' her back to me. Miranda! I grabbed her arms and spun her around. Her face blanched, her eyes widened. A long strand of red-orange hair draped across her left eye. She looked exactly as if she'd seen the ghost of her husband she'd cheated on. Max, how did you... I kissed her cheeks, her lips, her forehead, over and over. It's okay. I'm here. I'm here. She pushed me away. What are you doing here? I came to bring you home. She stepped backwards. You've been drugged. It's a chemical. A neuromone we discovered. The words came in a flood. I explained it all to her. How the single vial of the substance had disappeared the night before she left. How Rossi must have slipped the neuromone into some food or beverage she'd consumed. Oh, Max, she said. I told you to stay away. None of this is your fault, Miranda. There would have been no way for you to resist. You would have fallen instantly in love with the first person you saw. Max, I need for you to listen to me. She put her hands on my forearms as if to both steady me and keep me at a distance. I know I'm drugged. She paused for a beat, as if to let the message sink in. Rossi confessed everything to me. What? I felt as if the floor shifted under me. I'll work on a treatment, Miranda. I'll... No. 
You don't understand. I'll find a way to counter the effects. I want to stay here with Rossi. Her words stunned me. I know I should be furious. I should feel victimized. But that's not how I feel. I'm an adult. I'm lucid, rational, and I'm in love with Rossi. Deeply, totally, unconditionally in love. I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. You're not thinking straight. She shook her head vigorously. Look, the chemical stimulates the processes in the brain when a person is in love, right? In other words, if you compared my brain chemistry with that of a normal, happy newlywed, there'd be no difference between the two. Isn't that right? Well, yes, but in your case, it's been triggered by a foreign substance, a drug. So what? Miranda! So what? What difference does it make what the origin of these feelings are? The point is that they're real to me. I'm in love with Rossi. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And what about me? What about what we had? A long pause followed. I've behaved unforgivably. You have every reason to despise me for what I've done. You're not at fault. Rossi is. No, I should have settled things with you before leaving, Max, she said. But I was too much of a coward. Maybe someday you'll find it in your heart to forgive me for what I've done. But right now you need to forget about me and get on with your life. I can't do that. Not while she remained under the neuromone spell. Please, don't make me hurt you any more than I have already. She turned to leave. Rossi will be here soon. You should go. I hoped it wouldn't come to this, but I had no choice. I lunged and grabbed her from behind. Peeling off the synth skin covering my thumb, I pressed the dermaplast-soaked digit against the back of her ear. She struggled for an instant before letting out a sigh and falling back into my arms. I cradled her as Joriander and Hexa approached. Maxwell, what did you do? Joriander said. Hexa grabbed Miranda's wrist. Is she dead? She's fine. Help me take her back to the ship. We're putting her into space sleep for the trip back to Earth. Joriander crossed his arms and wiggled his stubby fingers, a gesture I'd never seen before, but which I later came to associate with worgen anxiety. Hexa mimicked him. We walked half a block to the monorail line. Passers-by gaped at Miranda's limp body in my arms and boarded a private rail car back to the LaSalle airstrip. Joriander stood watch over Miranda's body in the ship's medroom while Hexa prepared the ship for departure. I stared out of the plexi and saw the terminal's metal door were open. Two silhouettes emerged from the bright interior, one human and the other worgen. Their appearance was inevitable, I suppose, given our implanted trackers. I walked down the ramp onto the tarmac. What do you think you're doing, Max? Rossi flashed an angry smile before he spoke. He looked thinner than I remembered, younger. Somehow he managed to find the time to maintain his tan on Triton. As he approached, he pulled an air pulser from his bomber jacket and pointed it at me. 
Don't do this, the worgen accompanying him pleaded. The alien looked at me with lovesick eyes as if marveling at a delicate flower about to be plucked. Don't worry, old Bodo, Rossi said to the worgen. I won't hurt him unless he forces me to. He moved closer, his worgen companion shuffling right behind him. Obodo, Rossi said, board that ship and retrieve Miranda. But are you sure you'll be... Do it. The worgen crossed his arms and wiggled his fingers while striding up the ramp and disappearing into the vessel. I trusted you, you son of a bitch, I said. I thought I saw regret flash in his eyes for a microsecond. Don't play the victim here, Max. It doesn't suit you. Miranda's happy now. You didn't deserve her, he said. You kidnapped my wife. Well, guess what? You're getting on this ship with us back to Earth. When you wake up in a few months, it'll be to face charges. You'll be digging pits on Mars the rest of your miserable life. I don't think so, Max, he said. You're the kidnapper. I moved closer to him, and he jerked the gun upward pointing it at my head. Rossi, do you think I'm so stupid I wouldn't have a contingency plan in case you had a gun? Keep your distance, he said. He pointed the air pulser at my feet and attempted a warning shot. Nothing happened. I laughed. My working companion set up a dampening field. He lunged forward and knocked me hard across the mouth with the barrel of the pulser, dropping me to my knees. The force of the blow made my body field blank off and on and then disappear. The sub-zero temperatures assaulted me. I reached for the gun in my own jacket, the one immune to the dampening field, and fired. The shot went wide. At that moment, the ground rumbled and a geyser exploded in the distance. I stumbled and dropped the gun. It slid forward and Rossi dove for it ahead of me, I realized I had no chance of wresting the gun from him before he could fire it. I scrambled backwards, then raced along the tarmac away from the ship in the direction of Triton's towering glaciers. I rolled to my left and hugged the frozen soil above his line of sight, trying to control my ragged breathing. The ground shook again and an explosion boomed. Above us, a plume of ice slush shot into the air. When I caught sight of him again, Rossi's distant form darted into another crevice in the far ice wall. I leapt down the steps, my spikes crunching in the snow. I could barely feel my feet. Mucus had frozen above my lip. As I clambered down the final step, inhaling needles... I slipped and fell. My entire body slid sideways to the left and stopped just short of a crevasse two meters across that opened up into a black, bottomless pit. I crawled away from the edge and found my feet bolting into another steep-sided passageway. Like the prior trail, sharp corners lay ahead, only this time the path forked into multiple arteries. A maze. I slowed down at each corner, expecting Rossi to be lying in wait. I hit dead end after dead end, turning and veering back, looking upwards to see if I could climb out. 
but spotting only glassy scarps that stretched into infinity. When I made my way around a long curved bend, I saw him. Rossi was up to his waist in icy slush. He'd taken a misstep and found himself in quicksand-like slurry, no doubt precipitated by the gushing geysers that surrounded us and filled up the crevasses. I strode toward him, careful to stay on solid footing. This isn't about you, Max. It's about me and Miranda. He touched my ankle. I kicked his wrist with my other foot until he let go. I kicked him again and again, his arm, his shoulder, the side of his head, until the blue aura around him faded and his body feel collapsed. He let out a gasp that turned into a howl as the sub-zero temperatures assaulted him, and he sank further into the icy slurry. This was it, the moment I had waited for, ever since I came home to an empty house and a note in Miranda's familiar scrawl that simply said, It's over, Max. Please don't follow us. Us? And she had expected me not to do anything? I picked up the air pulser, which lay on the ground several feet beyond his reach. My arm shivered uncontrollably, so I grasped it with both hands, pointing it at Rossi's head. I I love her, Max. He barely got the words out through chattering teeth. I fingered the trigger. That's enough, Maxwell. Joriander, Hexa, and Olbado stood behind me. Scores of metal bots swarmed from behind them over the ridges of ice. One skittered over my legs and crawled onto my chest. Another crawled over Rossi. The blue veneer of my body field blinked back on, as did Rossi's. What are you doing? I screamed. This isn't your concern. We've deactivated your weapon, Joriander said. We can't stand by and allow you to kill each other. It would be blasphemous. Stay out of this. Maxwell, we do what you ask, what your people ask, because we love you. His every word oozed with compassion. All of you. You're all precious. You're all beautiful. It would be immoral to stand by and let you hurt yourselves this way. We want to protect you, to nurture you. He deserves to pay for what he's done. I trembled, but not from the cold, and my voice broke. You're both suffering from frostbite. You need to be tended to. The carapace of one of the bots opened like a blooming flower, and a syringe emerged, penetrating my thigh. I woke to the muted glow of the ceiling lights in the ship's medroom. Joriander sat on my bed, stroking my hair. I turned my head away from him. On the other side of the room, Miranda and Hexa stood next to a bare-chested Rossi who was buttoning his shirt. I lurched off the table, but lost my footing as the room tilted. Joriander grabbed hold of me before I collapsed. You need to lay back down, Maxwell. The sedative the bots gave you won't lose its effect for another thirty minutes. He helped me back onto the table. 
you alien bastard, I muttered. Joriander turned away as if I'd slapped him. Hexa and the other worgen, Olbado, accompanied Miranda and Rossi to the door of the medroom. Miranda stopped at the threshold and looked back at me. Can I have a moment alone with him? she asked the worgens. As they exited the room, Rossi placed a hand on her back, and she gave him a nod, as if assuring him it would be all right. He smirked at me, a smile of triumph, and followed the worgens. Miranda sat on the chair next to my table, her red hair draping the side of her freckled face. She took a deep breath. I remember when we first met Max. I felt the same giddiness, the same butterflies in my stomach feelings that I have now for Rossi. And oh, how I had reciprocated those feelings. Beautiful women like Miranda had always been out of my reach, and when she confessed her feelings for me, it was as if I'd been shunted out of my universe onto a parallel earth with lower gravity. I found it so endearing at first when you'd wake up with your hair uncombed and sit on the balcony in your underwear retrieving your work messages. She smiled sadly. But those feelings are dead now. Gone for good. I can't accept that, I said. What we shared was deeper than dopamine coursing through our brains. So says the man of science. <laughs> the man who studies the biology of love for a living. You got it all wrong, Miranda. It's love that causes the chemical reactions in our body, not the other way around. I have to believe that. She covered her mouth and shook her head. Don't go, Miranda. If you have second thoughts about Rossi, it'll be too late to... I'm talking about us now, Max. She pushed her hair out of her eyes. What happened to that electricity we used to have? Every relationship settles into a comfortable dynamic. You can't maintain that giddiness forever, I said. And as I spoke those words, I couldn't help but think of it in biochemical terms. The dopamine replaced slowly over the course of time with oxytocin and vasopressin. Intense passion replaced with feelings of companionship and bonding. I pushed the thought away. Miranda's expression turned deadly serious. There's something I need to tell you. Something I think you deserve to know. Her eyes met mine, and I could see a trace of fear in them. Rossi and I became involved about a year ago. As the meaning of her words sank in, I felt as if I'd been sucker-punched. Yes, that was long before you two discovered the neuromone. She paused as if to make sure I fully grasped the ramifications of what she'd said. Rossi would visit me whenever he knew you'd be working late at the lab. For him, you have to understand, it was all about the thrill of lying in his friend's bed and screwing his wife. The wrongness of it excited him. I knew that. I'm not stupid. But for me, over time, it became something more. I started to feel like a lovesick schoolgirl. Rossi would actually talk to me. He'd tell me about your work, about your concerns. The truth is, I couldn't wait for you to email me that you'd be working late so that I could be with him.
I flinched. A stranger was talking to me. I'm sorry, I'm not saying these things to hurt you, honestly. And I realize it was wrong of me to leave the way I did without explaining this to you. I see that now. She took a deep breath and continued. After a few months, Rossi began to lose interest and moved on to his next conquest. I felt foolish, furious. By then he'd told me all about the neuromone you two had discovered. I went to the lab one morning to visit and... She looked up at the ceiling. Max, Rossi didn't drug me. I drugged him. I heard the words, but I couldn't believe them. She had to be lying. You have the drug in your system, I said. I checked for it when you were unconscious. She sighed as if that bit of information now required her to reveal more than she intended. You have to understand... Rossi loves me now, wildly, passionately. It's everything I'd dreamed of. But on the trip here from Earth, I started to have doubts. My own feelings had started to wane, and by then I had already left you. I quit my job. I traveled across the solar system to Triton. There was no turning back, so I took that last dose of the neuromone myself so I could reciprocate his feelings. I opened my mouth, but no words came out. She stood up to leave. When you surprised me at the catacombs, I thought it would be kinder to let you think I was the victim, that my feelings for you hadn't died on their own, that they'd been erased by a drug. But that's not the truth, Max. So I did all this for nothing? She bent down and gave me a light peck on the forehead, squeezed my hand. Be honest. You didn't come here for me. Not really. Your friend stole something of yours and you wanted to get revenge. That's what this has been all about. That's not true, I said. But even as I denied it, I knew she was right, if only in part. I confessed everything to Rossi, and he forgave me. Of course he would. What about me, Miranda? What about what you've done to me? She remained silent for a long time. When she finally spoke, she said, After everything I've done, you can never love me again. I shrugged. Yes, I do. She raised an eyebrow. It's over, Max. It's been over a long time now. You just didn't know it. Well, you know the truth now. Leave us alone. Don't come after me again. With that, she turned and left the room, left my life. If what she said was true, if what we shared had died a long time ago, why did her words cut so deep? I staggered over to the porthole plexi and looked outside. Rossi waited at the end of the ramp. Miranda ran to him, and he lifted her off her feet in a tight hug. The door behind me slid open, and Joriander entered. You shouldn't be standing up, Maxwell, he said, exuding concern as always. Where's Hexa? I said. I'm going to leave as quickly as possible. Hexa has decided to stay behind with Olbado, Miranda, and Rossi. She and Olbado are much more compatible for mating than she and I would have been.
Oh? This was the first time I'd ever heard a worgen talk about mating. I didn't know what to say. I'm... I'm sorry. Why? Jariander looked truly perplexed. They make a perfect genetic match. In fact, they've already tethered. Tethered? I said. Joriander looked at the ground and didn't respond. But then I looked out the plexi and I caught sight of Hexa and Olbado. They no longer wore their leafy headdresses. Instead, a single rubbery cord extended out of Olbado's flat cranium into Hexa's skull, binding them together. Olbado carried much of the long, bunched-up tether in his hands to avoid tripping over it. So this is how members of your species commit to one another? Again, Joriander said nothing. The worgen seemed embarrassed by my question. Neptune had retreated all the way west and was now just a distant blue-green marble. A dark emerald hue filled the night sky. I'll never get used to the way that planet sets in the sky, I said. Millennia ago, Joriander finally said, this world was an asteroid floating freely in what your people call the Kuiper Belt. Then it came too close to this beautiful planet, Great Neptune, too close to the harsh glow of its incandescent beauty, and got captured in its orbit. That's why it rotates in the opposite direction of the other moons. Joriander recited more facts about Neptune and Triton, but I tuned him out. I was focused on Miranda, almost a speck now, walking hand in hand with Rossi toward the terminal, the two Worgens trailing close behind. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is David's. But more, more important than all that nonsense, David's in the book with that story, with some fantastic artwork. There is actually more artwork for that story if you go on the front of the website as well. There's some brilliant artwork by Brian Mutzler. So, Brian, thank you so much for that. Next up is the Hugo Reviews by Andy Thomaswick. Rainbow's End. If, if anyone remembers, this is the story that when myself and Kieran had that kind of little competition over the Hugos, and we had to read all the Hugos there, and Kieran picked the winner. You picked Verno Vinges. I picked the Elfenheim by Michael Flynn to win, because I had enjoyed that one. But, uh, Kieran was winning it always. We used to win them competitions. So, Andy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hugo Review. This time I'll be covering Rainbow's End by Werner Vinge, the winner for 2007. I'd like to start by saying that I have a deep-seated fear that I feel the need to share with all of you. Coincidentally, I think Mr. Campanella mentioned in a recent episode that he shared this fear of mine. The general idea of Alzheimer's disease terrifies me, but luckily for JJ and myself, they're going to develop a cure for it by the year 2020, at least according to the near-future world described in Rainbow's End. The fact that it's so near-future seemed to irk a lot of readers. They appeared to have a real problem with the startling advances in technology in the 14 years between when the book was published and when it was set. But whether it's set in 2020 or 2045, who cares as long as they develop a cure for Alzheimer's? That miracle cure allows the main character to grace the novel with his presence. 
Robert Goo is a famous American poet who died of Alzheimer's, but had his body put in cold storage and is subsequently revived once the cause of his demise had been beaten. However, this leaves him in a world drastically changed from the one that he left, and it also leaves his family less than thrilled. Not all poets can be Longfellow, and Gu had a reputation in his past life for being less than friendly to most of his relations. So when he is thrown in a retraining school with kids his granddaughter's age, it gives him a chance to make amends. But the novel is about a revived grandfather trying to make up with his progeny. Gu is narratively little more than a fresh pair of admittedly experienced eyes to view the wondrous world that has sprung up in his absence. The world had moved on, as one of my other favorite series says repeatedly, and Gu has much to learn. The changes that he experiences throughout his sojourn in this near-future world read like a checklist of the technologies that made me want to become an electrical engineer. Virtual reality overlays? Check. Automated cars? Check. Anthropomorphic bunny avatars? Check. Wait, did I just say that out loud? As Goose struggles to adapt, he befriends a kid enrolled in school and is dragged into a terrorist plot involving HP Lovecraft-based virtual monsters battling outside of an M.C. Escher-style library. Oh, and mind control. Can't really have a near-futuristic terrorist plot without mind control. The technologies mentioned here are just a sprinkling of the ones found in the book, and Vincent's imagination is on display here as much as it is in his famous 1990s novels. With that imagination comes a strong dose of Orwell. The development of a big brother is another psychological pounding that Goo has to deal with upon his awakening. In fact, some reviewers saw the entire book as an update of Orwell's 1949 novel with more plausible technology. I'm not going to go that far, but the book itself does serve a prescient look into the future. And I must say, I will be very happy with the world if it develops the technologies on display here, whether it's in 2020 or 2045, as long as the nuclear explosion that's mentioned as a side note in the book doesn't happen. A surprising number of people manage to survive that nuclear disaster and become characters in the book. Goo is an interesting character in his own right, and in a way that only Vinge can write them. However, the rest of the cast were somewhat less memorable. Goo's family seemed to be nothing more than the standard Californian family putting up with a somewhat grumpy and senile grandfather. Goo's friend at school, Juan Arcozo, manages to prove himself rather adept at developing alternate reality scenarios, but not much else. However, in Rainbow's End's world, that is a useful skill, as a person's ability to manipulate alternate realities is a major step on the path to a successful life. Even so, Juan as a character doesn't stand out much more than the family. The villains of the novel are even less memorable, and less adept at bending reality than Juan. But maybe they just made me forget them with their mind control. The plot doesn't do much better for itself. Anyone expecting the galaxy and universe-spanning epicness of a fire upon the deep or deepness in the sky will be somewhat disappointed with the more down-to-earth storytelling of Rainbow's End. That's not to say the plot is bad, it's just not as memorable. I'll admit that I had a hard time remembering many of the details about it, and even reading the Wikipedia article for the book didn't stoke too many memory cells. Wait a second. I can't remember the other characters or the story? Oh no, it might be happening to me already. They better hurry up with that cure. Before I start frantically reading medical literature about brain plaques and strongly consider switching my area of study to neuroscience, I'd like to thank you for listening to this edition of the Hugo Review. Next time we'll be covering one of my personal favorites, and the very first book I read as part of this project. Spin by Robert Charles Wilson. Once again, thank you, and please be sure not to let the all-powerful anthropomorphic bunnies boss you around. There you go. That is it. Andy, thank you very much. Thank you very much, you know, everyone. That's kind of taking you know, <laughs> guy at the top of the show there, D. Thank you awfully much. So, a couple of days, it's out. Please pop over to the website, 
Treat yourself to a copy. It is a chunky mother of a book there. Well worth the prices there. Be fantastic. If you like, you know, the extras as well, they're kind of fantastic. There's some lovely little extras in there. And you actually get to see my old workspace at work, how many kind of computers, one, two, three, four, five screens at me place. And actually, that's changed there now because we've had a big refurbish. Seven computer screens on my desk. Seven, yes, seven computer screens on my desk. Scary. So please think about supporting Starship Sova with, you know, volume three. It'll be fantastic. Just to let you know as well, over at Sofa Nords this week, I had a fantastic interview with Lavi Tadar. Lavi is Israeli born, brought up in the, the one of the last only kibbutz, or one of the last kibbutz to be kind of working there. Great writer, oh, fantastic writer. And in volume three as well. <laughs> I think a little plug in there. But a great, great interview. Pop over there to Sofa Nords. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, Evacuation Procedure Initiated. Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.